Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. It's a blessing and a privilege to be able to bring God's Word this evening. What a wonderful text this is. Kurt mentioned that this morning, and um, I, I hope to begin to do it justice. Um, there's always a, a, a sense when you come to a great text like this, not that, not that all of it is not wonderful and great, but especially in these texts that point so clearly and vividly to Christ, that, that a desire that to, to do such a text justice. It was a blessing, of course, last week to hear from our missionaries. I hope that you were blessed by our mission conference last weekend, and uh, what a blessing it was to hear from Dal and Beth Stanton and hear of God's work through them over many years of gospel ministry in various nations. And this evening we return to our series called Shadows of Christ. I'm excited to preach this text. I had the privilege of preaching several weeks ago on a Sunday morning from Psalm 1, and um, it was, it's good to see connections in Scripture, and that's one thing that excites me about studying God's Word, and we'll see some connections between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I mentioned previously in a sermon um, in this series that one of the challenges that we have before us, and, and especially for you as the hearers, is that we kind of parachute in to these texts, and we don't have a lot of context of the book in which we're dealing with a text that points to Christ. I was reminded of a story I heard from a man that I worked for a number of years ago who had been an army ranger, and he was one of the first men in to the invasion in Grenada. I don't know if you remember that. Um, it, was, it was a small invasion, um, and I think Reagan was wanting to make a strong statement against communism and sent some, sent some of our troops in there. But he related to me that they came in at low altitude, and they were told, look for the blinking red light and get on the ground and go to that blinking red light for further instructions. Now, sometimes in Scripture, a text that we think points to Christ might seem like a dim light. But the text that's before us this evening is like a beacon. You can't miss Jesus Christ in Psalm 2. And so that's why it's exciting to, to preach it. It is clearly speaking of Christ. And, and we would do well to heed the lessons that it presents. Now, in Psalm 1, if you remember, we saw the righteous man contrasted with the wicked. Psalm 1 stresses that we as individuals must know and follow the right way. We must meditate and reflect upon the right things, God's word, and make sure that we are members of the congregation of the righteous. And the psalm before us tonight, Psalm 2, is considering life on a cosmic scale. It reminds us that despite the huff and puff of the wicked nations and the wicked people, that God is sovereign that he has placed his king as ruler and he reigns. And just as Psalm 1 presents two destinies, the, the wicked contrasted with the way and the end of the righteous, Psalm 2 presents us with two responses that come as we recognize the rule of our king, Jesus. So let us read this psalm, but before we do, let us pause and ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Let us pray. Lord, we bow before you. We are needy people. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that you have given us your word in which you reveal yourself to us. And you show us who you are. 
So Lord, we ask for grace. And Lord, we ask that the words of, of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 2. <clears throat> Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word tonight. I want us to consider this text under four headings. Pastor Greco had two this morning. We need four to, to keep the average right. We've got four points this evening. First of all, and it, it's, it's neatly broken up by our passage. You, you might see it's kind of written in many of your Bibles, probably in paragraphs. But in verses 1 through 3, we see the rebellious nations. In the next set of verses, 4 through 6, we see the reaction of God. Next, we see the reign of the king. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, we observe the proper response to the rule and the reign of King Jesus. This is a royal psalm. And like every, uh, several other psalms of this genre, you, you read parts of it and you, you think it's clearly speaking of King David. But by the time you reach the end of Psalm 2... We realize that without a doubt, it's speaking of David's greater son, King Jesus, the Messiah. So we'll start this evening where the psalmist starts, with the rebellious nations. There's several things that our text highlights about these nations and about these people. First of all, they are hostile. They are combatants. They are against the Lord. They have set themselves against the Lord. They hate God. And anyone who would attempt to rule over them, they rage against God. To rage is to react violently against a real or supposed injury or injustice. And it's seeking retribution. It's making someone pay for that supposed injury. And when you look at these atheistic nations or these people groups or even individuals that are opposing God and setting themselves in opposition to God, they rage against God's laws and commands. You see that they are treating God as though he has wronged them, as though he is unjust or he has brought some injury to them. They desire to set themselves up as king and lord. They want to cast off the rule of another. They see God's rule as bondage to cast off. 
They reject the rule and authority of another. And this is really a question of lordship. As Dr. Dale Ralph Davis said, comparing this to Psalm 1, he says, this is what it looks like when the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers goes international. But these nations and people are not just hostile, they are also scheming. They plot and they plan. I found it interesting to to learn that the word that is translated in Psalm 2 as plot is the same word used in in, in Psalm 1, verse 2, and translated there as meditate. And just as the righteous man reflects on God's word, turning it over in his mind, considering it, and even muttering it to himself, so the wicked man and nations mutter against the Lord. They scheme and they plan. And without becoming overly political, I want to say that there are forces in our culture today that are diligently scheming against the church and against God's people. They are seeking to advance an agenda that is clearly against God and the ethics, particularly the sexual ethics of Scripture. They are raging against God. And we can read this text and think about nations over there or back in history, and it certainly applies to them, but it applies to the forces that are at work today in our culture seeking to force people not only to accept lifestyles that God condemns, but to embrace and affirm them in their sinful choices and behaviors. As we have said, this is really about lordship. These people are saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. These forces are hostile and scheming, but they are also persecuting They are not content to simply hate God and reject his lordship, but they also hate those who would align themselves with God and his purposes. This is especially evident in Acts chapter 4. And there we see the apostles using this psalm to encourage themselves and to interpret the things that they were experiencing in their day. Remember the priest and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were preaching Jesus Christ and they slapped them on the hands and told them to stop. And of course, Peter and John, you know, were were not to be stopped, but they reported back to other believers and, and they and the other believers went to the Lord in earnest prayer and they prayed Psalm 2 in their prayer. We see that they saw the crucifixion as the supreme example of the persecution spoken of here in Psalm 2 and the rebellion of the raging nations. They saw Herod and Pilate as the current rulers and the leaders of the God-haters of their age. Judging by what these God-haters had done to Jesus, these early believers were not surprised to see how they were hated alongside of Christ and his cause. So I ask you, are you surprised when people hate you? Are you surprised when you have aligned yourself with God, the true king, and you are hated by those who hate God? We shouldn't be surprised. Now, that doesn't mean we should be antagonistic. That doesn't mean we should be unpleasant. We should be sweet gospel people. But we should not be surprised when those who hate God hate us as children of God. Finally, these nations... They are hostile and scheming and persecuting, and they are also arrogant and irrational. 
Their arrogance is really seen throughout as they're raging against God. But their irrationality is shown just in the first word of the psalm that says, Why? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's, it's showing the irony of it. What are they thinking? Do they realize who they're raging against? They're raging against the God of creation, the God of the universe. Who do they think they are? Like they can gain any foothold or any standing against him. They may appear to prevail for a time, but they don't know that they're up against the God of creation. They don't know that they will be broken in pieces and pass away. And that leads us to our next point, the reaction of God. Does God seem worried by their boasting? Does, is he threatened by their showy parades of strength? Is he threatened by the bills they pass or the curriculum they introduce in the schools? No, he's laughing at them. He sees the irony, the irrationality, the insanity. He sees their smallness and holds them in derision. They are trying to send a message to the world of their great power, but God has a message for them. The text says he will speak to them in his wrath. He will rain holy ter terror on them. He will terrify them in his fury. We serve a God of holiness and justice and righteousness. And these attributes point to God's moral purity and the fact that he hates sin. And because he is holy and just, he must punish sin. And he has all power and all authority to do it, and he will. And how will he carry out his justice and wrath? It is through the agency of his son. It is his royal son. Up against the let us of verse 3, we see all the proud boasting of the raging nations. God says, here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my king in Zion upon his holy hill. I, one thing I sometimes like to do is, is look at speeches from famous uh, men in history. I like to read speeches. I like to, I like to uh, listen to, to uh, speeches of great leaders. But, and sometimes, a few times, I've come across speeches of Adolf Hitler. Now, I don't know German, and, and I don't look to him as a, as a good example. However, I have enjoyed watching those speeches because he, speaks with, he spoke with such intensity and, and fury. And there was such fury from the Fuhrer. And, and he, he used those words of intensity to rouse a nation behind him. And, and there was such opposition to God, yet God was not phased by Hitler. He knew his end. He, and he knows the end of everyone who lifts themselves up against him, against God the Almighty, and the king that he has set on his holy hill. His son will bring justice on those who rebel against his rule and his reign. And that brings us to our third point and the third set of verses, the reign of the king. What does the reign of the son look like? Who is this son that we're reading about here? What does this psalm tell us about his rule? Well, it tells us a little bit about his identity. God is proclaiming his son to be Lord. He is eternally begotten of the Father. He is the only begotten son, as we read in John 3, 16. He is begotten of the Father before all ages, as we're told in the Nicene Creed. 
He is the Son. He is the Son of God. He is very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Again, from the creed. He is God himself. And we see not only the identity of the king, but it gives us a window into the coronation of the king. Now, in a few months, we as Americans are going to get to witness something. Uh, I, I doubt any of us will actually be at King Charles's coronation, but we can watch it on TV. Something that, that I don't think probably any of us have, have gotten, maybe, maybe a few of you got to witness the previous monarch's coronation on television, but but we get to see a king um, coronated. He has finally gotten promoted, and we can witness all the pomp and the grandeur of that celebration when the crown is officially placed on Charles's head. And in Psalm 2, we read that God has spoken by a decree and proclaimed, today I have begotten you. Now, is this referring to Jesus' earthly birth? I don't think it is. But this is coronation language. This son is being proclaimed to be king. Yahweh has appointed him and installed him to rule. And this language is repeated in the New Testament. When the incarnate Christ is baptized, it's also seen as he um, is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And God speaks and proclaims, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Echoing the words here from Psalm 2. It helps us to see the relationship between the Father and the Son, and it helps us to see the divinity of the Son as well. It helps us to see that Christ is the Messiah, God's anointed one, appointed to carry out the plan of redemption for those who believe and destruction for those who continue to rage in rebellion against God. And while we're on this subject of coronation, we can, should consider another New Testament reference to Psalm 2, and that is in Acts 13. This is this Psalm 2 is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. In Acts 13, it's quoted in reference to the resurrection. So should we think then about Christ's coronation with his baptism, with the transfiguration, with his resurrection, with his ascension, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father? Well, the answer to that is yes. I think we can point to all of those events as part of the coronation and the proclamation of Christ as king. It was a rather long ceremony of coronation. We know for sure from Psalm 2, and especially as the New Testament writers help us to understand this psalm, that Christ is king. That's the message we need. The book of Hebrews quotes this and leaves us no doubt to whom this is referring. And it says, it's not the angels. It says, for, un for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Christ alone is king. And what is the extent of his reign? It is the nations. It is all of them. It is to the end of the earth. There's not a speck of dust or a grain of sand upon this earth for which Christ cannot say, mine. All of it belongs to Jesus Christ. Now wait, you might say, don't you know what's happening in China or places like North Korea? Those are not ruled by God-fearing men. I recognize that. But we have not yet seen the final and complete fulfillment of Psalm 2. Listen to what the king will do, though. He will break them. He will dash them. He will subdue them. They will either submit to him or he will destroy them. The rod is mentioned there in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. 
The shepherd's rod was used to sort the sheep, to separate the sheep from the goats. It was used to protect the sheep, but it was also used to punish the invaders and the robbers. The language there of verse 9 is used in Revelation 19 where we see Christ the Messiah coming on a white horse to bring judgment upon the nations, to bring judgment upon those who have not bowed the knee to him as king. We live between the already and the not yet. Already Christ is king, proclaimed to be king in Psalm 2, coronated as king on his earthly ministry through his resurrection and ascension, but yet, not all of his subjects are yet in line. And that's where we come in. That's where we come in. We're called to go to the nations, proclaiming the rule and reign of King Jesus. We're called to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why? As Jesus said in the words right before the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is, he is king. He is sending us. He is sending you. And that's why we can victoriously sing, Jesus shall reign. Where'er the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Is the sun shining on a location? There, Jesus is king. All subjects in all locations have not yet received or accepted the notice. But Jesus reigns everywhere. So let's go tell them. Let's tell them about King Jesus. And what do we tell them? Well, that brings us to our fourth point, our final point. The response that is required to the rule of the king. There's two things we're told in verse 10. Two things that are very concise, but things we need to hear. Now, now therefore, O kings, and I'll, I'll say also all peoples, be wise and be warned. Be wise and be warned. To be wise implies that you should stop and consider. You should think, who are you serving today? Are you serving King Jesus Listen up, O oh you rebellious nations and people plotting against God. As Johnny Cash said, sooner or later, God will cut you down. Be wise and be warned. And that's the way of wisdom. What, what is the way of wisdom? If we're to take this warning, if we're to heed this warning, the final two verses have three verbs that we would be well to consider if we're to take this warning. Serve, rejoice, and kiss. That's an odd combination of verbs, isn't it? Serve, rejoice, and kiss. I want to deal with the last one first because the other two fall in line if you get the kiss part. Kiss the sun. What should we do in the presence of a king? Well, you better honor the king. If I were ever, ever privileged to meet an earthly monarch, I would want to understand what the proper, proper protocol is. And I'm pretty sure that I would be briefed on that. I would be told how I was to address the king, how I was to stand, how I was to bow, how I was to do everything in the presence of the king. And I would try really hard not to mess it up. If you're in the presence of King Jesus, there's only one thing you can do. That is submit to his rule and reign and authority because he is the king. The proper response to the king is to bow 
to submit. The kiss is a sign of submission. And if this begotten son, this anointed one, is truly the king that this passage and all of scripture is telling us that he is, we had better kiss the son. We had better show humility before him and submission to him. We must recognize that he is God, that he is the God of righteousness and justice. He is a God who hates sin, and he is a God who will punish sin. Revelation 19 tells us, back to, back to that what we referenced before, that, that John saw him coming on a white horse. He who is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He is the one from whose mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Should we fear this king? Should we fear this son? You better believe we should. If you're outside of Christ especially, you better fear this king. If you've not bowed the knee to King Jesus, I implore you, be wise and be warned and listen to what Psalm 2 says about Jesus Christ. This king, this son is God. He is the God of vengeance. To kiss the son is to recognize this fact. It is to bow the knee to King Jesus and to serve him. And those other verbs, like we said, will fall right in line when you appropriately bow and worship the true king. Serve and rejoice. Serve the Lord with fear. Now, that might seem easy enough on the surface, and if you're here on a Sunday night, you probably want to serve the Lord with fear. But maybe you're here because someone made you come, or maybe someone expected you to be here, or maybe you aren't even a believer and you're just here to check things out. What does it mean to serve the Lord, and how do you do that with fear? Well, to serve the Lord is to seek to obey him. To serve him is to learn of him, to consider him as who he is, as the rightful king. It is to give him allegiance. It is to follow him. Jesus said in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Sounds like there's some sacrifice involved. And yes, yes, there is. We're to serve the king and we're to do it with fear. Why fear? Because we recognize him as king. We recognize who he truly is. It's not servile fear, but it is to give God the respect and glory that we should, knowing that he alone is God, that he is king. It is to love what God loves and hate what God hates. That's how we rejoice with fear and serve the Lord with fear. As I said earlier, that we're living between the already and the not yet. We live between the time that Christ was on the earth and proclaimed to be king and the time that he will be publicly recognized as king of kings and lord of lords for all to see. Now, if you're here tonight and, and you are in Christ, if you have confessed your sins and, and trusted in him for your salvation, then, then you, I trust, are recognizing him as king of kings and lord of lords. But if you're not, I invite you, I beg of you, I implore you, I command you to come to Christ and bow the knee to King Jesus. Because the good news is that this king is also our savior. He's not just a king that, that rules in power. He is that. But he is the king who died, that, that 
purchased salvation for his people that invites you today to come to him and bow the knee. And it's not, it's, 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 it's not a difficult thing, but it, it does require a sacrifice. It does require giving up of yourself. Remember, it's a question of lordship. It means that you bow the knee to King Jesus and you say, I'm not on the throne anymore, Lord Jesus, you are. And if you are in Christ, that's something you do every day. And I trust that as you look at Psalm 2 and as you reflect upon Christ's lordship and kingship, that you will continually reflect on who he is as king. I, a pastor that I that I had a, a number of years ago in reference, he would speak of, of Romans 12, and he said the, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps coming off of the altar, keeps stepping down off of the altar. And we have to keep putting ourselves on the altar as we're told to in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Christ is king. Is he king and Lord of your life tonight? If he's not, come to him. Bow the knee to King Jesus Submit to him, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if you are in Christ this evening, you know of that blessedness. You know of the joy and the delight and the way that you can rejoice with trembling, knowing that he is king of kings and lord of lords of your life. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.